Yeah, so as we settle in, I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, where today uh, we're going to finish uh, our value steer- series by looking uh, at a story that really, uh, I mean, I believe a lot of us can relate to, because uh, how many of you, uh, you like just to s- just kind of debate uh, who the greatest is, Right. And I'm not talking about like you're debating if you're the greatest, but uh, just like you, you, we like those debates where we talk and sit and say, well, what's the greatest in this area or in this area? And so we're, we're going to press into some of those uh, here in a bit. But man, this is a really uh, just kind of practical story that, uh, man, we see, uh, man, often our hearts, but man, what the good news has to say uh, about really what we value. So if you've been with us over the last three weeks, we're moving, this is week four of this series. Uh, really we've been walking through, uh, something we do every September is walk through what do we value as a church. And so we've been looking, uh, really as, as we look and think about, man, our vision for planting uh, a church here in Brenham that we didn't plant just to gather people. We didn't plant because we thought Brenham needed another church. Uh, but why, uh, do we, uh, do we feel called to, uh, be a people People uh, that plant ourselves here in this city, and man, I found it really interesting. Uh, this week, I, uh, I went to the gym, and, and I have a buddy at the gym. Uh, we, uh, he works out in the class before me, but he just kind of talks all the time. And so uh, we uh, were interacting afterwards, and he just asked me. He said, "Hey, Kyle, uh, what's the vision of your church?" And then immediately after that, he said, "Aside from you getting a helicopter." And we just kind of laughed about it, but part of me was kind of sad that like that was his response. Like, hey, what's the vision of your church? What is your church value aside from you getting a helicopter? And he, I was like, one, you don't know me because I would never get in a helicopter. Okay. <laughs> but two, like that that's kind of the culture we live in where, uh, man, the kind of the, the theme or the thought for many churches is, man, how do we get big enough to get our pastor a helicopter? You know, I'm not looking for that, by the way, okay, uh, at all. But but I, I just kind of sat back and he asked, and I knew he was genuinely asking. And so I told him, uh, man, something that I hope, if you're a part of the life of our church, that it's something you learn, but also something you learn to articulate. Uh, just very simply, I said, hey, well, man, at our church, we simply just want to be good neighbors to Brenham. And he kind of looked at me and he gave me a funny look. And I was like, man, you know, and the way we do that is we just want to display, uh, man, the good news of Jesus. And, and, you know, I think he was trying to wrestle with, well, that's not a helicopter. Uh, <laughs> but what is that, you know? And so it just kind of opened this door to just a short, small conversation where I just got to say, hey, yeah, this is what we want to be about. We want to be good neighbors to Brenham. And the way that we do that is by joyfully, not begrudgingly displaying the good news of the gospel in every part of our lives. And so, man, when we think about the church that, that, that we want to be, and again, I'm not talking about uh, the brand center church or the building. Again, the church is not a building, right? Like we are the people of God uh, that, that are purposed with displaying, man, the glory of God with our lives. That we, as, as God tells Adam and Eve, we are to be fruitful and multiply, and that means that we're to use our giftings. We're to use man, the, the grace of God to display the fruit of his spirit in every part of our lives. That's what we're after. We want to be a culture that does that. And so when we think about our values, really, and, and I've shared this every week, our values are really born out of the narratives or stories we speak. So, man, if you want to know what someone values, 
Just sit with them and listen to what they talk about. What you value is what you're going to talk about. Like what you love, no, no one has to tell you, uh, as I've heard it said, no one has to tell you to preach the gospel of your favorite sports team. It just naturally comes out, right? You know, like, especially like, or like, no one, like, you, you shouldn't. No one should have to tell you to proclaim and speak about the love that you have for your spouse. You know, like, you, you, that should be something, like, we constantly should want to do that. But man, are we doing that when it comes to proclaiming and talking about, man, what the, the narrative of, uh, of the gospel in our lives and the way that, that the gospel wants to impact others' lives? And I got to go, um, I, I went to a funeral yesterday, and at the funeral, the, the main theme was that this woman went to Walmart all the time and just proclaimed the gospel. Like that she would set up times every day where she would be like, hey, and she would ask people, you know, and and uh, and one person said they're like, well, how, much, how long are you going to be there? You know, like, I don't know that I have that much time, but like they were passionate about proclaiming this good news. Are we passionate about proclaiming this good news? And so values are born out of the stories and narratives that we tell. And really, that finds its root when we look at it in behaviors. Dave Ferguson said that culture, uh, when you see a culture, it is the spontaneous repeated patterns of behaviors. And man, we want to create such a culture where we have that. Where we're just, these things are just naturally a part of who we are. And so we want to grow, and, and specifically, there's four behaviors that I've kind of laid out over the last three weeks, moving into this week. And first is that we would be biblically transformed. That we would learn to see God's Word rightly. That we would see Him as the main character. That His Word is not about us. That's your first time hearing that? You're welcome. God's Word is not about you. It's for you. To transform you, but it's not about you. You see, Jesus is the center and of this story, not only that, but we, we've talked about, man, to be biblically transformed is that it begins in the head and, and we, are re, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind as we learn more about who God is and what He has done in light of our brokenness and the good news that comes along with that. Man, it gets down into who we are and it changes who we are. And then lastly, that, man, the Bible is imperative for any real transformation. Not next best practices, not uh, how many times you come and check the box of church. Uh, Man, those may be good things, but man, if you're not going to his word, then you're not going to see the real transforming transformation that you need. Which led us to week two, which is that we want to be an engaging community, not just a welcoming community. I was thinking as everybody was walking in here, I was like, maybe I'll just make mass chaos in the beginning and just have everyone just kind of walk around before we really dig in and just engage. And, and you know, y'all have done that before. Where it's like, hey, everyone in church, go greet someone you don't know, you know, and it's just it's just mass chaos and a little bit awkward. But uh, we decided not to do that. But we want to be an engaging community. And so it's not just welcoming people at the surface level, but it's really learning that we must share life together and engage others. That we would grow more and more into the understanding that as followers of Jesus, we live in a kingdom that is in the midst of the culture. That we are not running away or pushing, like that we are actually entering in and saying, hey, this, there is better news in God's kingdom.
And then last week we saw that, man, if we're going to be a people that grow in behaviors, that we have to learn to grow in honest transparency. That we have to learn to be honest and transparent before God. We have to learn to be honest and transparent about ourselves, right? Because I don't know about you, but my greatest struggle in learning to be honest and transparent is that I would be honest and transparent to myself about where I'm at and where I struggle. But also that we would learn to be honest and transparent before others so that we might create a culture of repentance, forgiveness, and grace. As we think about all these things, as we really step into and press into all these things, man, I, 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 I want to note one thing, and it's this, that gospel culture is not something that we can produce in and of ourselves. Not only that, but when seeking to change behaviors, we first have to realize that while we must do something, because there's always going to be obedience attached to it, The change we need is not found outside of the follower of Jesus. Uh, It is already residing in us. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you are indwelt with the Spirit of God. Why are we always looking elsewhere? I started reading a book this week and the writer said this. He says, growing in Christ is not centrally improving or adding or experiencing, but deepening. For implicit in the notion of deepening is that you already have what you need. You're just going deeper. Therefore, Christian growth, the writer states, is bringing what you do and say and even feel into line with what, in fact, you already are. We often think, well, I, I'm missing something. I don't know. If you, and if you, have, if you were indwelt by the Spirit of God, you have all you need. Why are we looking elsewhere? We, we don't need uh, uh, new catchphrases and all this. No, we need Jesus. I mean, you can think about that in every area. Like your marriage, you don't need a new marriage. You need your marriage to go deeper. But oftentimes, guess what? That's harder because <laughs> it means dying to self. That's what we're after. This is what we are after as a church in this city. Instead of searching out the next best practice, let us rather dive into the work that Jesus wishes to do in and through us. You see, this is how a gospel-centered culture is formed. This changes our narrative from excuses and blame shifting to honesty, worship, and proclamation of good news. This is when we see behaviors really change. As a church that seeks to be good neighbors to Brenham, this is what we want to see. But we are not simply after it so that we can pat ourselves on the back. No, we're after it because we know that our calling as followers of Jesus is to display this transformative work with our lives. And man, I believe one of the primary ways we do that, along with all the other things we talk about, one of, one of the other behaviors is that we would be a people of caring service. And when we think about being a people that care for and serve others, I want us to hear that, man, our motivation in doing that is not so that we might prove ourselves or earn something from God. Rather, we do that in light of the saving power of the gospel. And because of the good news, we are then commanded and empowered to love, care for, and serve others. 
And so what I want to do with our time today is look at what the Word says about our calling to be a people of caring service. And then I want you to hear about one practical way that we're going to engage this behavior moving forward as a church family. And so let's read this story in Luke chapter 9 that entails really a question that we love to ask. We're going to look at verses 46 through 48. It says this. These are the disciples. It says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So everybody sign up for Center Kids. Be a volunteer. Uh, So in reading this passage, man, I want to I want to give some quick context because I think the context of what what uh, really all of chapter nine is doing leads to kind of this crux moment where Jesus sees the disciples wrestling with their own heart. So if you go to the beginning of Luke nine, what you see is Jesus at the beginning of the chapter. He sends out the 12 disciples and he says, look, you have all authority to cast out demons and heal diseases. And they go out and do that. And so you just imagine, like, they've gone out and done that, and now they've come back. They probably feel pretty pumped up and good about themselves, right? Like, they think they are, man, they're, they're awesome. This has happened, right? And so we, you, you continue to journey through, and, and you see that. But following that story, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Likely more than 5,000, because they only counted the, probably the males, so it's probably more than that. Uh, but he feeds, man, uh, a multitude of people. And then Peter actually says the right thing for once in this moment. He says, Jesus, you are the Christ. And those are all a lot of amazing things. But along with these stories, you also see Jesus seeking to get the disciples to realize the reality of what he's come to do and how his kingdom will really be established. And it comes, as we know, not in the way expected. You see, leading up to this argument, Jesus, not once, but we see twice, right before this, right before verse 46, Jesus tells them, hey, I'm going to die. Not only that, but after his first foretelling of his death, he tells the disciples, he said, hey, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and pick up your cross. Hey, I know I sent you out and you you had all this authority and things like that, but if you really want to know what the kingdom's like, you're going to have to pick up a cross. You're going to have to die. Just imagine just the wrestling of that and what's going on. and, And yet Jesus continues to display the kingdom. He tells them these things and then he takes Peter, James and John up on a mountain and he transfigures and his glory is seen and they don't know what to do, right? So they try to put Jesus in a box, really in a tabernacle. They say, hey, let's build these things so we can worship you. And Jesus is like, no, you're missing it. Then he foretells his death again and it's following the second foretelling that the disciples who are still probably pretty hyped up from being sent with authority, they begin to argue and debate about who the goat is, right? Goat means greatest of all time, right? Like they have an emoji of a goat, right? Like (laughs) that's how we know it. And we all love to debate this question, do we not? I can't tell you how regularly I hear people debating or find myself debating what or who the greatest fill-in-the-blank is. 
And some of them are no-brainers, right? Like, what's the best chicken sandwich? Chick-fil-A, right? Like, it's the best chicken sandwich, you know, and it's my pleasure to tell you that. Uh, and, you know, and so we know there's some very, that's like, yeah, it's a no-brainer. What's the greatest store to shop in? Some of you are like, Target. You know, like, like I love Target. Uh, but we, we have these things that we love to debate. Who's the greatest NFL player ever? Tom Brady, okay? Like, I hate to say it, but it's Tom Brady, all right? He's almost 50, and he's just still dominating everyone. It hurts my soul. What's the greatest team ever? Dallas Cowboys, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, sorry, you can debate it, but you're wrong, okay? <laughs> Who's the greatest NBA player ever? Michael Jordan, okay? If you think LeBron James, just, you know. Like, even my children, Space Jam 2 came out, and they were like, Daddy, we want to watch that. And I said, okay, but first, <laughs> let me tell you who the GOAT is. <laughs> And so, like, I was like, this is Michael Jordan. And they were like, well, is LeBron James as good? No, he's not as good, right? That's why his, it says Space Jam 2. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it blew my son's mind because he was like, man, I, you know, I was like, you know, Michael Jordan has his own shoe and it has his, and, and I know LeBron James does too, but I mean, it's Michael, they're Jordans, right? And he was like, I want some of those, Daddy. I was like, well, Daddy doesn't make that much money. I can't, I can't, daddy can't even get a helicopter, you know, so we're not getting Jordans. And so we, we know these things. Uh, at the fair a couple of weeks ago, we, my son had a draw, his drawing got selected, which was a huge deal. So we went to look at it. And man, the other thing that you can put in the fair is like your own pickle recipe and your own bread recipe and everything. And so I'm walking around and like in my mind, the best pickles in Washington County are mine. Like ogle pickles that I make are the best pickles ever. And so I'm telling Haley, I'm like, look at these people's pickles. I'm going to enter this thing next year. And she looks, she goes, these are children. I was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, but they're still going to get beat. <laughs> like, sorry. <laughs> like, they better get ready, you know? Like, 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 we do that. It's probably some pride there that I need to work through. But, like, it's ingrained in us. Like, what's the best state? Texas, you know, like, like we have, like we have this mentality where we love that. You see why we love to debate and answer this question, I mean, in the context of what's going on in this passage and in terms of what it means to be good neighbors to Brenham, I mean, I believe the way that we answer the question that the disciples are arguing with, which guess what? We argue that same question. We, we may not name it the same thing. But I believe that with the way we answer it, even in terms of, man, the underlying competition and vying for the church that projects itself to be the best. Like, we do that even as churches. We have to be wary about what or whom our answer points to because the way we answer that or the way we argue who's the greatest in the kingdom says a lot about how we display caring service towards others. You see, what we find happening in verse 46 amongst the disciples while an argument is really at its root just a wrestling for place and identity. And this wrestling is natural in each and every community. You see, due to our fallen nature, we are all looking to assert oneself and establish ourselves at the top of the pecking order. And it's this 
quick response to assert and establish that while seeking external satisfaction, because that's what the disciples are doing. They're wanting to say, okay, who is it? Well, Jesus, Peter, you know, Peter, they said he's the rock. Like, what does that mean? Like, how do I, you know, he also says a lot of things he shouldn't. You know, am I better? Am I, you know, I healed this many people when we went out or I did this when we went out. And they're arguing it. You see, what I think that's rooted in is the broken, sinful identity of a heart that is struggling to find satisfaction in God rather than self. I mean, this is not something that was new even when Jesus was around, and it's not new today. Like, it, it, after the fall in Genesis 3, this already starts. We find this struggle and need to assert and find identity in what we do and how much better we are. And what does it lead to in Genesis 4? It leads to murder. Cain's upset because Abel, like his sacrifice was accepted and his wasn't. God says, hey, sin's crouching at your door. What Cain decided was, man, no, I have to I have to be in that place and I'm going to do whatever I can to get in that place. So he killed his brother. See, it's this mentality and pursuit that leads to not only arguing, but destruction in our culture and in the life of the church when we seek to place ourselves in places that only God belongs We've done this every week when we've looked at how, how does the culture see this and also have been a lot of times the church looks very similar. Man, I believe our culture would say be the greatest no matter the cost or who you have to run over to get there. The culture says all your value is found in your bank account and the car you drive and the home you live in. I mean, who, do we, who, who does culture worship? Those that seem like they're at the top. Culture says, serve yourself, look out for number one, care about your needs over the needs of the next person. You know, the, 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 the free market we live in, which is amazing, is oftentimes so cutthroat because I have to get to you before you get to me. I'm going to build my kingdom, I'm going to promote my agenda, and I'm going to seek to establish it over and above all others. We could say that's foolish, but we do the same in the church. It just looks different. What we do, we kind of talked a little bit about it last week with Honest Church. We just want to seem like we're the best and greatest, right? I just want to be put together enough to where people don't know. And if I can't, do that, then I'll point out someone else's flaws so that everyone's attention is averted off of me towards them. We try to expose others through gossip, slander, and critique. Let us seem like the best. You see, an attitude that the church, um, we, we often in the church carry this attitude that the church is for me, which means that they are there. The church is there to serve me and meet my every need for discipleship and growth. Like we we want to be the best, but we think, man, I, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to sit back and allow. Man, I'm just going to consume everything. Because guess what? At the end of the day, it's all about me and me making myself feel good and me making myself look good. See, 
See, we like the disciples run into the same lies. But the good news is that while we try to fake it, while we try to posture, while we try to project, Jesus knows the reason of our hearts. And because of his great love for us, he won't let us stay where we are. Rather, he draws us in by humbling us. You know, he does it in the story. It says that he puts a child beside him. And he says, the key to greatness is that you would slow down enough to quit promoting yourself and begin pouring into others in ways that seem meaningless from culture's perspective and yet are the most meaningful things you can do. Man, in that day and age, like children, they like no one cared about them, right? Like they, they, they were, you're just a child. I mean, we, you probably experienced that as a kid. It's just like, hey, you get away. The grownups are talking right now. Go to the kid table. Jesus says, hey, like if, if you think, if you're looking at what's, the, what's great, and he's like, you probably got your priorities wrong. He says, if you want greatness, it is not found in what you produce, do, or the position of authority you carry. Rather, it is a taking a lonely position of service that puts others above yourself. Man, what if we began to see our marriages that way? What if we started seeing our parenting that way? Haley and I had a, 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 a long discussion on Friday night. Actually, it was two nights long. This is where we're at. Honest transparency. About parenting and what we need to do. And like our kids are growing. And so they, they all have different discipline issues. But also they have different personalities. And, you know, and so we're sitting there talking through it. And this is what we ended with. So what we need to do is we need to work on our own sinful hearts. Yep. <laughs> All right, good talk. You know, like it wasn't so much how we need to. There are things and practical things we need to do to like see that our you know, to care and engage our kids hearts. But uh, man, for the most part, it's what's going on in our own heart. And they're just seeing it and then they're modeling it. And I was like, I don't like that. Like, I don't like. And yet that that's it. like Jesus is. He, he's drawing us to say, man, you're we're, you're always thinking about you instead of taking the lowly position. What if we started seeing our neighboring and relationships and our jobs as a place not to promote self and grow our little man-made kingdoms, but as an avenue for us to seek to be the least so that we might place Jesus in the proper place of authority and worship in our lives? I think this is a theme of Jesus' time on earth because He didn't just come and say that we need to do that. He modeled it. In Mark 9, Jesus says, if you want to be first, you must be last and the servant of all. The night of his betrayal, what does Jesus do? He takes his robe off and he washes his disciples' feet, even the one that's going to betray him. And then what does he tell them? He says, look, what I've done, you do. What I've done, you do. I think my favorite story, the one that's probably impacted me the most in terms of this is in Matthew 23. Uh, Jesus, uh, they're asking Jesus, like, how do we know about the kingdom? How do we know you? And he says, man, if you've done any of the things to the least of these, you've done them unto me. And he goes on, he says, you know, if you've fed the hungry, if you've given water to the thirsty, if you've visited the sick, if you've uh, man, gone and visited those in prison, if you've clothed the naked, you've done it unto me. And I think we can read that. And on the one hand, what we need to do. 
And I think usually this is where we take it. It's like, okay, let's go feed the hungry. Let's go give water to the, you know, like, let's go to Honduras and do a well project, which is amazing, right? Like, like let's go, let's go do prison ministry. Let's go, man, uh, clothe the homeless. Like, all those things, which are great things. But I think what we miss and where we need to t- take a step back and where this has impacted me is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, the reason you do that is because that's exactly what I'm doing for you. We were dying of hunger and He came as what? The bread of life. We were dying of thirst and He came as living water. We were naked in our sin and shame and He comes and clothes us in righteousness. We were in prison and He came to what? To set the captives free. We were dead and He gave us life. Man, if we saw it that way, then our motivation would be not just, I'm going to go serve some people. It's no, I really care about serving some people. James chapter 1 says that pure and undefiled religion is not self-promotion. It's not seeking to build for you, but taking care of orphans and widows. The first part, he says, is keep yourself unpolluted from the world, which is not, hey, run away from the world. It's actually, again, go in, engage, and proclaim a better kingdom. But the other thing is just simply take care of orphans and widows. You see, living lives that are focused upon proclaiming the gospel leads us to the reality that we are not the good news that saves. Jesus is. He is the one who came and took the lowly position. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came as the firstborn among creation, which means Jesus wasn't born in the sense of like that he was the firstborn. But no, everything finds its, its reality through him. He created all things. And yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself to the point of death. Jesus is the only one worthy of the position of authority and worship. He is the greatest. He's the goat forever. For all time. And guess what? You can argue against it, but one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You see, this reality and this understanding and living in this type of posture of humility also produces and motivates us not towards self-service, but caring service. You see, to care for someone is to have a concern or a heart for them. When you begin to take your eyes off of you and put them on God, He gives you a heart for others. Guess what? It's really easy for us to serve and just move on, is it not? That's why I think at times, not all the time, sometimes I think our heart's in the right place, but like that's why we get so gung-ho when like a hurricane hits and we work really hard for like a week. And then after that, we're like, we, got a, we made a video, you know, like we're going to promote that. We want to pat ourselves. And, and yet, like we just go on about our lives. That's not a bad thing. But man, our heart, like we, we should be a people of caring service. We say, God, man, give me a heart for others. You see, to care is to be relational. Caring service, which is what we're after as a church, is a wholehearted response towards God in light of His care and service towards us. 
Note the focus is towards God. We are not serving for the praise of man, but for the glory and worship of God. Again, service alone, if we are not careful, disconnects itself from care. And if people do not experience the love and grace of Jesus in how we are serving them, are we really serving them well? And so how do we show caring service towards others? I'm going to give us just a few things. First, I think one of the greatest things we can do is we can stop talking and start listening. One of the greatest things you can do for others is simply just to sit with someone, ask good questions, and take time to listen to their heart. Oftentimes we think service is, I'm going to come in and tell you what you need to do, and then I'm going to just go out, right? But no, it's sitting down and saying, man, I want to learn about you. And then as we listen, often, again, we want to give them our wisdom. No, we need to give them Jesus. Give them good news, not new enslavement. While we are to call people to obedience, caring service leads us to point them to Jesus over performance. See, at the end of the day, our response to listening to others should be to proclaim to them the word of God, not our wisdom or their need for best practices. The gospel transforms the heart first. And when the heart is transformed, motivations change and behaviors begin by grace to look different. Sometimes I think we don't serve or really care because that takes a little too long for us sometimes. We're quick to give up on people because they don't get it the first time. And then, man, we've got to step into the mess with them. Jesus didn't just sit on the sidelines and say, hey, guys, just be better. He didn't coach us up. No, he entered in. said, no, I'm actually going to take your place. While we cannot fix others, we can journey with them and seek to serve them in practical and tangible ways through prayer, encouragement, and even sacrifice. You see, caring service is care for the long haul. This means that we have to be willing to give of ourselves. And the last thing in that is like as we, as we man, wrestle with this and engage in this is that we have to seek to engage in caring service. We have to look for opportunities. Don't just wait for the church to say, hey, this is what we're doing. While we need to do a better job of, man, seeking those things out as well and, and, and pushing those things out and saying, hey, this is what we're going to do. Also, man, it, like, if, you're, if you have a heart for something, man, act on it and bring others along with you. We don't need to create a whole event for it. Just go do it. Also, to do this, you have to create margin. Man, some of you are too busy to, to, to care and serve others. I believe oftentimes we're not too busy. We're probably just too selfish. And so for Center Church, how do we engage our city and be good neighbors who practice caring service? Man, I think that question could be very overwhelming because <laughs> there's a lot of need around us. And we could immediately just say, well, let's do this and let's do this and let's do this and let's go. And, and I think in the beginning when we first planted the church, that's what we tried to do. And then we were like, man, we're real tired all the time. But I know we have a heart for it. 
And so what we're going to do is we've just said, oh, hey, what's in front of us? We're going to start small and build upon that. And so, man, kind of as a church, like where we want to begin in starting small and what's in front of us is we're, uh, man, we're going to just kind of begin as a church to engage our lives in, uh, in a ministry called Hope Gathering. Uh, and so, uh, you know, with the purpose and the hope that, man, we would grow and like, you know, it's great. Like we've served and been a part of adult and teen challenge and we want to, man, see what it looks like to step into that, uh, in the future as we continue. But man, we want to start here with what's in front of us. And so I'm going to have, um, Tammy Glasgow come up. Uh, Tammy is my mother-in-law. She's the greatest mother-in-law in the whole world. Uh, and uh, and uh, I'm going to have her. Uh, she started uh, this ministry called Hope Gathering. Uh, her and two other lady, two other women. And so uh, she's going to share a bit of the story, but also uh, share, uh, man, uh, ways that we can seek to start having caring service uh, for uh, this ministry. So. Thank you, Kyle. Um as Kyle said, I'm his mother-in-law, and he's still letting me get up and, and share with you this morning. <laughs> Today would be my husband's 60th birthday. But in July of 2014, two months before his 53rd birthday, he was killed in a freak accident. I am a widow. I hate that title, and I hate the reality that it represents. But I have chosen to trust the sovereignty of my God. And I know I'm not alone in this reality. You may be surprised to find out that approximately 1 million people are widowed in the United States each year. And 800,000 of those are women. One third of the women that become widows are younger than 60. And one half will be widowed before they're 65. According to the Census Bureau in the United States, the average age of a widow is 59. I think that's shocking to people. 75% of these women will lose their friendship networks, and 50% will leave the churches that they attended with their husbands. When I became a widow, I was 17 days shy of my 51st birthday, and I was desperate to find another woman who was in the same season of life and understood what I was walking through. But that was easier said than done. When we hear the word widow, we typically think elderly. But as the statistics that I just shared revealed, widows are every age, and they're in every season of life. And I promise you, they are desperate for community. God graciously sent two widows similar in age into my life, who were acquaintances at the time, but have become two of my dearest friends. Together, we saw the need for something to connect other women like us, and we began to pray about what that might look like. In December of 2015, we invited 25 women into my home. Most we did not know, and they did not know one another. 17 women showed up that night for what we called an evening of hope, and that was the beginning of hope gathering. We are a community of widows finding hope and healing in Christ, encouraging one another in the journey, and seeking God's purpose for our lives in this season. Guys, women responded, and they even became coming from neighboring towns. 
So we then began what we called joy groups for women that were a little farther along in their journey of grief. We saw a need to create something for senior widows. We've called those grace groups. To date, we've reached close to 150 women in and around Brenham. These groups offer grief support, practical help, opportunities to serve, to build friendships, and to help women realize the purpose that God still has for their lives. We created hope boxes to share with hurting widows, and I've actually got some out that I can show you all later. These boxes are filled with helpful resources and personal items to help a widow begin to navigate this journey of grief. As we distributed these boxes, women began to ask us to mail them to friends and family members outside of Brenham. The need was growing, and we heard God calling us to more. So in December of 2019, Hope Gathering Incorporated. In February of 2020, we gained our nonprofit status. And in March of 2020, Hope Gathering launched nationally, right as the pandemic hit. But in spite of that, we were able to share almost 150 boxes with women in 17 states. We were able to host our first ever retreat, which we called a Weekend of Hope. We hosted 40 women from around the state of Texas. We believe that no woman should have to travel this journey alone. Therefore, we started the process of creating chapters of hope gatherings in other cities. I've written a book called Seeds of Hope, which is a guide to create hope gatherings. This guide is currently with an editor, and we hope to have it in print by the end of the year. Hope Gathering Navasota launched in June of this year, and Hope Gathering Houston will launch in November. We have three more groups in the application process to create chapters in their cities. God is moving. As registration continues to come in for our second weekend of hope, which is scheduled for next month, we are beyond excited to have women coming not only from around the state of Texas, but we have women coming from Oklahoma, Louisiana, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia. God continues to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine. He continues to help women find us, and he continues to provide the financial resources to share hope with these women. So far in 2021, we have distributed 220 of these hope boxes. God is bringing purpose from our pain. When you become a widow, you not only lose your husband and best friend and the love of your life, but there are countless secondary losses. One of those is the loss of the man that we gave our honey-do list to. Because let me tell you, it is hard to ask for help. Even with three son-in-laws in Brenham, it is hard to ask for help. We are extremely thankful for the men of this church and their willingness to step up and help the widows in our community. The precious women in our groups have truly been overwhelmed by your generosity. So far, you have scaled tall ladders to change light bulbs and trim tree limbs. You've installed security lights, security doorbells, and unexpectedly discovered the need to spray for wasps. You have installed a handicap bar in a shower, changed flat tires on equipment, and the list goes on and on. God calls the church to care for the widow, 
and our church has chosen to heed that call. Over the past five years, our church has helped with our now annual Evening of Hope. For several years during the month of February, which is a month that highlights the reality to widows that they are alone, you have shown up at our Hope Gatherings to share a small gift and a hug with our women, reminding them that they are loved. I am beyond grateful for the ways that this church has loved on the women in Hope Gathering, the way that you've served the widows, and the way that you're expanding this opportunity. The sad reality is that our numbers continue to grow monthly. Last week alone, we added four new women to our local Hope Gatherings. But what a blessing it is to be able to offer the hope and the healing that are found only in Jesus Christ and the help of our local church. I'm going to be available in the foyer after church if you have more questions about Hope Gathering or if you'd like to see one of our Hope Boxes. But right now, I just want to say thank you for letting me share. Thank you for supporting Hope Gathering. And thank you for caring for widows. So that's just a small picture of what we want to be about. Um, and part of that is, you know, engaging that. It's not waiting around. Uh, man, if you have a heart uh, for helping even just kind of create structure around what it looks like to continue to, to serve and help with Hope Gathering, like, man, come talk to me. Uh, so we can kind of get that process started. It's not just, uh, on the one hand, yes, it's the honeydews. Like our, some of our men and it, a couple of MCs last week went and helped and things like that. But also, man, I think it's just the other side of like, man, what does it look like to engage and invite people in your home uh, and care and just be community uh, to those that, man, are, are walking through the loss of a, a very, very important piece of their community. And so, man, I want to encourage us uh, to start there. Uh, let us engage. Let us be in prayer. Let us support and look for opportunities uh, to serve and be a part of what's going on in the life of Hope Gathering. And again, this is where we are starting, but we want to see this grow. We know that, you know, the other area every year uh, with For the City, man, we want to engage that backpack drive, you know, and, and helping pack backpacks. Like we want to see what does it look like to, uh, man, uh, man, engage in the lives of adult and teen challenge. And the list could go on and on and on. But let us be a people uh, that are looking uh, to be people that not only care, but that serve. But I want to bring uh, Brett and the team back up. And, and I, I just want you to just think for a moment. Uh, you know, we, we talk about what the church is looking at, what we're uh, going to press into. But man, for you today, what's in front of you? Who are the people in front of you? Don't neglect the relationships in front of you. Learn to be a listener. Learn to respond with the good news of God's word. Learn to step in. And again, we you you often we we often want to look outward. And and man, we that, I think those are outward things are really good. But man, uh, begin with your spouse. If you're married, like begin with your spouse.
Are you listening to Him? Man, caring service should begin there. Like your marriage is meant to model what the church is to look like. What about with your children? What about in the life of this church? Just like in the life of us doing life together as uh, missional communities and as uh, people that gather on Sunday. How do we learn to listen better, to respond to one another with God's word and to step into the mess at times? And may this be who we are. May we, man, as we grow and, and seek to continue uh, to be good neighbors to the city. Let us be biblically transformed. Let us be an engaging community that grows in honest transparency and, and that seeks uh, to live out caring service towards others in light of how we've been cared for in Jesus. And so I want to invite you just to spend some time in reflection and prayer and think about what does that look like for you and, and what does that look like for you to gauge even in the life of our church. We're going to worship and uh, man, we want to invite you if you're a follower of Jesus to come and share in communion. Uh, we've got up here in sharing communion what you're being reminded of is what Jesus has done, how he has served you. And we do this in remembrance of him. But also we do it in remembrance of knowing what He's called us to. So I want to invite you to those things. But Jesus, we thank You that You came and that You modeled for us what it means to to serve and serve with all that You are, the giving of Yourself. And may we be a people of caring service that are empowered by Your Spirit, that, that, uh, whose identities are secure in You, and we don't have to run and look to other things, but that we could be empowered, that we could uh, seek to make the impact that You've called us into in this city. Give us eyes to see what's in front of us. Let's not neglect those things. Let's lay down our selfishness and our pride and our arguments of of seeking to assert ourselves in a position that only You deserve. And may we live lives of deep worship that exude that. In Jesus' name, Amen.